Hello, and welcome to the Collider.com podcast. I'm Collider.com senior editor Matt Goldberg, and with me is deputy editor Adam Chitwood. Howdy, folks. Today we'll be talking about Godzilla, King of the Monsters. We'll also be talking about the legendary MonsterVerse, so that means going back to 2014's Godzilla, as well as Kong Skull Island, and sort of how these films connect, and the progression of them in terms of tone, and what audiences are now expecting from Godzilla. And we're also going to talk a little bit about the history of the Godzilla character and what it means to make a Godzilla film. Uh, But first, we're just going to start out with some general thoughts on the film. My review is on the site. I was disappointed by this movie. Um, I thought basically the kaiju battles were were decent um, with some nice sort of splash pages, if you will, of, of the action. But... I felt that the character and the stories were pretty weak. And while some will argue, oh, they're always weak in Godzilla films, I don't think that's necessarily true. Um, I'm not saying that like any people come to a Godzilla film for the human story, but I do think those stories actually do matter because most of your film is not Godzilla. It's the human characters. So you have to give them something worthwhile. And I feel here the film is bloated. It has way too many characters. It doesn't know what to do with them. And the plot is a mess and it's just, it's very sloppy uh, in a way that I find was really disappointing. So what did you think about it? I liked the moth. You know, (laughs) you mean Mothra? (laughs) The the big moth, you know, with the light. Uh, Yeah, I don't know. This is a weird movie kind of. Um, not in a, necessarily a good way. Like I don't, I didn't hate it. I went in, uh, a friend of mine had seen it and he said it was super boring. So I was like, uh, please don't be boring. And I didn't, I didn't necessarily find it boring. Um, it's kind of not very cohesive though. And I'm a fan of Michael Doherty. I like, uh, I like trick or treat a lot. Um, and Krampus is pretty fun. Um, but this didn't like parts of it felt like Michael Doherty. Parts of it felt like him, um, you know, kind of having some R-rated fun on a PG-13 level. Uh, but then, like, it felt like kind of like the the studio had kind of um, commercialized it or glossed over some parts of it. Um, it felt pretty streamlined and just kind of all over the place. Like the the thing that that kind of nagged me the most was that every almost every single line of dialogue was exposition. Like it's so much exposition and like, uh, you know, um, so what is this giant larva? Oh, we call it Mothra and it's going to do this. And like, where is Godzilla going? Oh, he's going to this place and we have to go to Antarctica. What's in Antarctica? Oh, well, that's where Monster Zero is. What's Monster Zero? How do I, how long have we known about Monster Zero? Just like, yeah, there's not. And because all the dialogue is exposition, it, there's no, what are the character relationships in this movie? Well, I know that Bradley Whitford is basically Rick Sanchez from Rick and Morty. <laughs> and I'm on board with that. <laughs> yes. I liked Bradley Whitford in it just for just the Bradley Whitford-isms. But it's kind of what it, it relies on because all of these characters are delivering interchangeable dialogue. And so it's on them to like come up with their own delivery of it, of like how that's going to make a characterization. Aside from Kyle Chandler and Vera Farmiga, who are the leads of the film – um, and I think who I think both of them do a fine job. There's a reveal relating to one of them that I won't reveal on this podcast that I think could have come earlier in the film, and I think that would have made the movie a little bit better. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I agree. Because until that point, you're kind of like, what's the point of this? Like, what's going on? Where are we going? And why are we going here? 
and what are they doing? Um, I was also really confused about Charles Dance's character because for some reason I was convinced he was playing the older version of Tom Hiddleston from Kong Skull Island, but he definitely is not. No, that was like a rumor, but that he's not. He's playing a completely different character. Okay, because I kept waiting for the other shoe to drop. I was like, okay, there's going to be a reason that he's here, right? Like, he's going to be nope, like something. He's, he's just he's, a guy. He's going to say something interesting. Nope. All right. <laughs> he's just a guy. Um, so that was a bit of a waste. Um, it's a giant ensemble, and I think that's part of the problem. Well, it's a giant ensemble, and it kind of – I would ra- – I, it has a lot of great actors. Like, I like Thomas Middleditch. I like O'Shea Jackson Jr. I like Zi yeah. uh, Yang. Is it Zhang Zhang? How you pronounce uh, name? Zhang Ziyi. Zhang Um And uh, Ken Watanabe, Sally Hawkins. Like, this is a really good cast, and it's a waste of pretty much everyone. Did uh, you know that David Strathairn is in this movie for about 45 seconds? I saw that. I was surprised. <laughs> oh, he's in it. Okay. <laughs> Get paid, David. Yeah. So, yeah, I just it's it's a lot of it's a lot of like i guess the the thinking is we'll put a lot of great actors in our movie and that will make up for the fact that there are no characters in the script and i'm like yeah. no that doesn't doesn't really work that way you actually have to build relationships and motivations and character arcs and again the cynical reasoning is no you don't you're just here to see godzilla smash things yeah. And I'm like, it's not a binary proposition. You, to, you can still have Godzilla smash things and give a shit about the humans. Yeah. Yeah, the, it, it, uh, you're right. It's it's not a give and take. And I, I do feel like they really, really tried with the Kyle Chandler character. Uh, and there are moments where that works, and it's largely due to Kyle Chandler. But then, uh, for one reason or another, his character... Uh, I mean, for the first half of the movie, I really liked his character because everyone else was just delivering exposition. But he was someone who, like, genuinely had feelings and thoughts and, like, was passionate about something. Uh, And then he just, uh, like, devolves into an exposition machine, just like all the other characters, and is making these turns that don't make any sense. Like, he's he suddenly thinks that he, he thinks one way about Godzilla at the beginning of the movie, but then, like, halfway through, just decides to change track. Um, and it doesn't make a ton of sense. Um, yeah, I mean, the arc, his character, yeah, he does have a character arc, but it's not really earned and it's not fleshed out. Yeah. And and then part of the problem is, is because he's sharing so much screen time with other characters that we don't really care about. Who are I mean, you have to tell us who really have to spoon feed us in a way that I don't think the film really requires. I don't think we need this. The, the film is straddling this weird line where... It wants to be like the Godzilla movies where he just they're kind of cheesy and campy and he just fights other monsters like very B movie. But at the same time, they're like, no, this is real. And we can't just call it Mothra because its name is Mothra. We have to call it Titanus Mothra or some nonsense like that so that you take it seriously. But actually, it's just Mothra. Yeah, and I feel like it also is really, really concerned with uh, revealing the mythology of Monarch, um, which I think is a, a solid idea foundationally because the Gareth Edwards movie didn't really delve into that at all. But I feel like the movie itself just gets bogged down in that because every new monster that comes up, they're like, all right, we got to spend 15 minutes digging into, like, what do we know about this monster? Where does this monster's origins come from? Have there been other sightings of this monster? Because now we're kind of inside Monarch, so we have their inside information. Right. But it Uh, also makes things very dry and sterile. Like, the monsters aren't out in the world. 
all of these locations, except for the climax of the film, are at some freaking monarch base. They're like, oh, yeah. this 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 monster, you know, this monster is at this monarch, and this, and we can evac. Like the movie is so terrified of being like, we can't let the monsters squish people. I'm like, sometimes people get squished. Like <laughs> sometimes Godzilla knocks over a building, and there are people in the building, and they're like, no, 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 that can't be it. No, because then we'll get called out. I'm like, Godzilla is not Superman. Like, yeah. he's not a hero or a villain. I mean, he can be depending on, like, that's one of the great things about Godzilla is he can be whatever you want him to be. He is not in the movie, in like his movies throughout time. Sometimes he's the hero. Sometimes he's the villain. Sometimes he's just a force of nature that doesn't have, that is neither good nor bad, but you don't need to be like, oh, if Godzilla knocks over a bill, a building and the building is full of people, then people won't root for Godzilla. And I'm like, I don't know. Like, how nice do you need Godzilla to be? <laughs> yeah, that was a little weird. Um, you're right. He's not. Uh, it's not. This isn't Man of Steel, and this isn't the Avengers. Uh, he's a giant, big, hulking monster who's gonna move around. Which is why I really like the opening scene of the film, which uh, reveals some backstory of Kyle Chandler and Vera Farmiga um, by flashing back to the events of the 2014 Godzilla, where they're just kind of bystanders in the way of this destruction of Godzilla. Uh, which is really fascinating and, and an interesting track. And that was honestly, that was the focus of Gareth Edwards' movie. It was kind of a boots on the ground. Like, we don't really know much about Godzilla. We're just kind of kind of experience it. Whereas this is more of like, all right, we're in the tank with Monarch and they're tracking Godzilla and we're just going to be with them. It's kind of like Twister, but with Godzilla. Like, they're just running around. Yeah, they're, they're near as fun as Twister. Uh, yeah, I honestly, now you say that it's Twister, I would actually wish that there had been like, a rival organization that just wants to make money <laughs> off the monsters. But like, you it know, but Monarch is. is in it for science. Yeah. There kind of is. It kind of is, but it needs to be more like Carrie Elwes. Yeah. You know, like more Carrie Elwes. Like I want, you know, Rodan for the money. <laughs> more of uh Philip Seymour Hoffman wearing an OU hat. We just need more Philip Seymour Hoffman. I miss that guy. Yeah. Oh, I know. Me too. Um, it just got sad. Um, anyway, yeah. back <laughs> back to Godzilla before I bum us all out even further. Um, yeah, I just feel like because Monarch is the driving force, like I get it, like it's a solid plot vehicle, but it's an, a horrendous character vehicle. And it gets, yes, Monarch will get you from A to B to C to D, but it does so in such a tedious, lifeless fashion that it just feels completely perfunctory. And without any real investment in in the people that you're following. Okay, now I can't stop thinking about Twister and how much better that movie is at this kind of plot device. Yes. Because it's very similar in that they are chasing Godzilla throughout the movie. But they're tracking him and they're trying to find, okay, where is he going to go next and what's he going to do? And same thing in Twister. They're tracking these tornadoes across Oklahoma uh, during this giant storm. Like, where's the next one going to hit? And trying to find them. But in the downtime in Twister... They go to the home of, uh, is it Helen Hunt's characters, like Ant or something? And they all have, like, some down-home cooking, and you get to, like, enjoy the chemistry of the characters. And there's the tension between Bill Paxton and Helen Hunt, which was apparently off-screen as well. Uh, infamously, they refused to film their parts for Twister the Ride at Universal Studios together because uh, they disliked each other so much. Now I'm bumming everyone out again, uh, ruining the magic of Twister. Um, but those little moments like in between the tornadoes, uh, made the characters endearing and fun to follow along and interesting. Whereas in Godzilla, the little moments in between the monster fights are spent 
talking about mythology and talking about the history and talking about the science. There are like a few moments here and there where it's a family story with Kyle Chandler and Millie Bobby Brown, who's fine, but kind of wasted in this movie, but they're few and far between. Yeah. That's the thing. Like if you're going to be an ensemble film, then invest in that ensemble and their relationships with each other. And this notion of like, we need to stock up on mythology feels very, self-serving for the franchise like we gotta you know build up the mythology because there are more of these monster movies you know coming down the line so we got to keep feeding that beast rather than these characters that are we know are in in the way that we know are one and done you know the, yeah the only character who's coming back between uh that's that signed on for godzilla versus kong from king of the monsters is millie bobby brown I'm pretty, yeah. I don't think anyone else is, is signed on. Um, yeah, I think that's, I think that's correct. So that's all, that's it. So the monster. Oh, and, and maybe, yeah, I'm not sure. Uh, I, I guess it'd be spoilers to reveal more. It'd be spoilers to reveal more because Billy Bobby Brown was big casting and I'm not yeah, spoiling, yeah. spoiling anything. Sorry, people who are like, is the little girl going to die in Godzilla King of the Monsters? No, no, she's not. She survives. Sorry. Um, but it, it's it's all investment in the monsters, and I think it's also kind of like way too fan servicey in the way that they try to bend over backwards to be like, hey, you know, don't don't you like Mothra? Well, don't you like how in the you know in the old Godzilla movies, Mothra was summoned by these twins, and like those twins are connected to Mothra. Well, now we're going to bend over backwards to explain to you how we have our own version of that. It is the most belabored Easter egg I have ever seen, and it is in no way clear and concise what is even happening. As someone who had not seen and was not familiar with that until just now, uh, I will say that's a super confusing yeah, part. Yeah, it's super fucking confusing, and you're just like, oh, I. and the best you're ever going to get out of that moment is, I understood that reference. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It doesn't help the plot, it doesn't help character development, it is literally an Easter egg, and you're like, oh, I understood that reference. Yeah, it cuts to this character with slightly longer hair, but I just thought it was the same character, and it was like a continuity error. And then it cuts to a scene where the character is like explaining that they're a twin, and you're like, okay, this is relevant. How? <laughs> yeah, it's just an Easter egg for Mothra fans. That's all yeah. it is. So if you've seen Godzilla versus Mothra, you get it. If you haven't, good fucking luck. But the film just ground to a halt to try to service idiots like me who've seen Godzilla versus Mothra. <laughs> Well, and I think it's a, the film is kind of indicative of be careful what you wish for. Like, you know, the, the Lost was built on the notion that the questions are more interesting than the answers themselves. Uh, and you love to like think about the question and, and get a little bit more of the of the answer to the question. And I'm guilty as charged. Like I sat through Godzilla King of the Monsters being like, all right, I had questions, but I don't really want any more answers. Um, except for one particularly really interesting piece of mythology that has to do with uh, something underwater that I thought was really cool and slightly underutilized. I'm bummed that it doesn't seem like it's being uh, revisited. Um but then in the credits, like it's got all these teases of like what happened next and these other things that I have questions of, and I'm like, wait, what is that? And what is that? Um, but it, this movie just presupposes that as soon as it like as soon as King Ghidorah or Ghidorah, what's Ghidor his name? Ghidorah. As soon as King Ghidorah arises, it assumes that you want to sit there and listen to every single question you have about Ghidorah be answered by these scientist characters. And it's like, oh, that's actually not very interesting. Yeah. I, I didn't really need to know that much about King Ghidorah. <laughs> 
Yeah, I don't need to know. Like, and again, if you're like a Godzilla fan, like, oh, yes, this is in tune with the mythology. And like, that's all fine, I guess. But it just, here's the problem with trying to create continuity in Godzilla movies is that at the end of the day, 2014's Godzilla was a reboot. There is no, no one in the 2014 Godzilla is like, hey, remember when Godzilla attacked Tokyo in 1954? No, because it didn't happen in this universe. So this, there's this weird thing where it's like, we're going to treat these other movies like they exist, but not in our universe, only external to our film that the audience knows. And I'm just, I'm so tired of filmmakers winking and nodding to the audience. I'm just, I'm so tired of it as if it means something. Like if you can't, if it if it's not dictated by the plot, you shouldn't twist the plot in circles and like we've seen it a bunch of times like you saw it with like that Blofeld revealed in uh Spectre or <laughs> so stupid or the con After reveal spending months being like is he Blofeld is he Blofeld yeah and in the film he's like I am Blofeld and it means nothing to James Bond because James Bond doesn't know who the fuck Blofeld <laughs> is in this universe only the audience recognizes that name has importance, but the audience is not in the movie, so it doesn't fucking matter. Speak it... for yourself, buddy. <laughs> I, got, I got those sweet D box seats. I feel okay. like I'm... you're you're there. It's just <laughs> it's a weird way to break the fourth wall and drop a reference that is completely hollow. It is it is just the most the laziest kind of way to wink at the audience to be like I too am a fan and it's this weird sort of shibboleth where they're sort of like I I can I know the right things to say to get the audience on my side I'm like the audience will be on your side if you tell them a good story not if you're like hey I understood the twin that that Mothra has these twin fairies what if I kind of had that in this movie like it it doesn't work it reminds me of Jonah Hill and This is the End where he's meeting with Jay Baruchel and Jay Baruchel like makes a pop culture reference and Jonah Hill's like, sick reference, bro. Everyone <laughs> yes. knows you kill it with those references. Yes, exactly. <laughs> and he's completely earnest, but it's just so like, oh, that's silly. <laughs> sick reference, bro. <laughs> we need to, I need to make a gif of that. Sick reference, bro. <laughs> like that needs to be the new Captain America. I understood that reference. <laughs> yeah. Everyone knows your references are sick, man. Um, yeah, I didn't understand. I didn't understand any of those references. So they were just kind of like weird, and that's what I mean. Is that like the movie's kind of weird and and uh, jumbled and and not super duper cohesive. Um, I mean, I will say the the monster fights are pretty fun. I like the monster fights. Did you they're, like the monster fights? They're okay. <laughs> <laughs> no, they're okay. They're only okay, and I'll tell you why they're only okay is because they're not particularly well paced and structured. Yeah. So. I would agree with that. I think Doherty comes up with some really good, like, splash pages. Like, when he pulls back to a wide shot and shows you, like, the size and scale of, like, Ghidorah and Godzilla and, like, coming at each other. Like, when you really capture the scale of that and that imagery, that's great. The problem is, is it's surrounded by a lot of supporting effects that are distracting. Like, it's always in rain or snow. So that obscures the action. Then we keep cutting back and forth between the wide shots. And then like, because we always have to see what the humans are up to, we got to cut back to the humans. 
And the humans, like, yeah, one time they'll show you the scale, but eventually it's just, it's breaking up the flow of the action. So, yeah, it's great to see Godzilla and Ghidorah trading blows, but now I'm watching a bunch of soldiers that I don't even know running along the ice trying to get away, and I'm like, I, I don't care. That's not why I'm here. You're, I know you guys are just going to die. So why are we why are we prolonging this when what I really want is a, the big monster battle? So I don't think... I think the monster battles are fine, but I think, honestly, they were done way better in 2014's Godzilla, where Gareth Edwards understood building tension and really giving you some moments to cheer for. Yeah. Well, in scale, too, I really like Gareth Edwards' idea of you're following the action from the point of view of the people on the ground. So it's kind of like Cloverfield, but it's not... Uh, it's not like camcorder-esque. Yeah, that no. really gives you a sense of the scale. And I think the way he paces it, it's a lot better. It doesn't feel jumpy, and it doesn't it doesn't feel like you're breaking the tension of the fight uh, as much as you're sort of, like you said, it's boots on the ground, and it, it's constantly trying to show you that scale. Yeah, whereas in King of the Monsters, it feels like they're a little worried that audiences are going to check out because they don't care about two monsters fighting. So it's like, well, let's show them some humans that they can care about so they feel some sense of stakes or yeah. a sense of peril. Which, like a character dies in the middle of one of these battles, and I'm like, okay. Well, it's like, okay. probably better for that character to leave. And better for that performer. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's kind of what I meant. I don't want to... Yeah, I'm not going to say... But it was just like, yeah, yeah, there's, there's really no reason for that character to be in the background of these scenes anymore so yeah but it was it's done so abruptly it kind of reminded me of uh when one character the i won't spoil you know the predator but you know the kill i'm talking about in the predator where it's like <laughs> did that character die <laughs> uh, yeah that, god that movie still makes me mad <laughs> yeah <laughs> what a what a wasted opportunity um yeah it, it was weird um I don't know. Uh, the whole Millie Bobby Brown of it all was also strange too. Cause it was like, Oh, maybe it's like a young protagonist here and she's a really good actress, but Kyle it, Chandler is really the lead of this movie. Yeah. It's, it's weird how she's brought in. Like she's, she kind of exists as motivation for yeah. Kyle Chandler, which, okay. And then she kind of moves the, like basically if we need to get Kyle Chandler from point A to point B, we'll put, Millie Bobby Brown at point at point B. Yeah, yeah, that's kind of how it goes. Um, yeah, and then I was kind of exhausted by the end of it. Um, I thought, I mean, again, I thought the fights were kind of cool. Like, I was, I, I didn't hate this movie, and I wasn't bored by it. Um, but I was tired by it towards the end. It's kind of like, okay, let's wrap this up. Yeah, and and here's the thing. Like, I, I would say about Godzilla that. <sighs> I don't want to be like there is one true Godzilla because Godzilla has morphed and changed over the years. I don't feel that way. Like there are certain superheroes where I feel like they have a core identity and it's clear that when you stray from that, the character doesn't work as well because they're characters, not monsters that just smash things. So like a Godzilla movie, you know, you not that Godzilla doesn't necessarily have a character, but he's not, you know, he doesn't talk. He doesn't, you know, he smashes things. That's what Godzilla does. So it's all about how Godzilla is utilized. So, you know, 1954 Godzilla is very much a, it's, you know, it's a monster film, but it's really more of a drama and it's a really great film. I mean, when you consider that it's coming out less than a decade after Japan has been bombed and Godzilla stands in for nuclear terror, he literally has atomic breath. 
Um, that's a that's a heavy film. That's a nation wrestling with a cultural tragedy and how to proceed in the future. Like it's it's a really deep, fascinating film. I highly recommend the criterion of it. The the commentary tracks are are outstanding. Um but then, you know, you get down the line and then, you know, Godzilla becomes a you know, he's a little campier, you know, it's guys in rubber I mean it's all, it was guy in a rubber suit for a long time. Um but it becomes sort of, you know, let's have Godzilla fight you know, Mothra or Ghidorah or Rodan or Mechagodzilla or, you know, and just, you know, he fights and whatever. And then, you know, it, it grows and it changes and there are different takes on Godzilla as recently as 2016 Shin, Shin Godzilla, which is about the bureaucracy surrounding Godzilla, which is what happens when Godzilla attacks. How does, you know, how does the state respond to that? Um, so, you know, I don't want to say that like what, Gareth, that Gareth Edwards Godzilla is somehow more true to what Godzilla is than what Michael Doherty is doing. But I do think that Gareth Edwards had a very clear vision and idea for what he wanted. And I think that it paid dividends, but because the audiences audiences today are not used to that kind of movie, the backlash kind of changed the direction of the monster verse. Yeah. I don't know. It's, it's, it's strange. I, uh, I, I had forgotten that Gareth Edwards was supposed to come back and direct the Godzilla sequel, and they announced we were at Comic Con when they announced that he was directing it, and they had gotten the rights to Mothra and Rodan and Ghidorah, and then they put it on hold so that he could go and make Rogue One, and then they were like, "Oh, never mind." So that's why it's kind of been a while since this has come back, and I was a fan of of what Edwards did with that that film um i mean the human characters whatever but i really like the the scale of it and the way he shot the monsters uh i think i think it has great tension and pacing like i think it's a film that looks at godzilla and is like we are going to make this worth the wait i'm not going to just simply say i uh drew mcweeney had a really great article about the age of casual magic which is that you can just sort of in this age of CGI, you can just make anything show up. So you yeah. really have to lean heavier into your craftsmanship. So it's easy to make Godzilla. Like it's not that you can't make Godzilla show up in the first 10 minutes of your movie. The reason that you don't do it is so that that effect has dramatic weight. Yeah. Cause the effect itself isn't going to wow anyone these days. Well, and so much of that movie is spent chasing Godzilla and you only see the destruction that he left. And it's so massive and so giant. And so you – it's left to your imagination to think like what does this monster look like and how must he look when he's destroying these cities and look at this devastation. Whereas in King of the Monsters, uh, I guess you're right. It is so casual that like these monsters are laying waste to these cities and I'm just kind of like, all right. Well, laying waste to the cities, but you have to know that the cities are also empty. So no, yes. no, pe- no, no people were harmed in the making of our fiction film. But like it'll cut to the ground and then it's like people running, but then it cuts to a giant wide shot. So you see Ghidorah like on top of a mountain, but the scale doesn't really – the scale's not there. I don't think Doe or uh, – I don't know. It, I don't think the filmmaking is as strong as Edwards' is on uh, that 2014 Godzilla. I agree. And I say that understanding that like – there were reportedly he had some help on that film as he had some help on Rogue One in reshoots. I don't know who from and I don't know in what spots, but if you look at Monsters, his uh, like tiny budget debut, you can see that the scale and the tension, I think, was most of that was him. Yeah, I think he again, I think he had a very clear idea of like, this is what I want my movie to be. 
This is what I want my Godzilla film to be. And I think audiences were like, yeah, I don't want to wait. (laughs) I don't want to wait for my monster to show up, even though it's awesome when he does. Which is why I think, you know, when Kong Skull Island comes out, you've got Kong shows up in the first 10 minutes. And you immediately get the scale of him. And it's really a monster fest throughout. But I think Kong Skull Island is, I think it's an interest. I think it's a neat looking film. Yeah. With a lot of interesting ideas, I don't think it necessarily coheres as strongly as it wants, as strongly as it wishes to. There are elements of it that I really like, and then elements of it that feel kind of like, oh, that's a neat thing, but you didn't know how to execute it. No, that movie, it's clear that Jordan Vogue Roberts, I think he's a really imaginative guy, and he has a lot of really cool ideas. Um, but throwing them all into the pot doesn't necessarily make for a satisfying stew. I, As yeah. Carl Weathers would tell you. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But, and, and so Kongskalan is just like throwing a lot of things at the wall, but it's like, yes, you are going to get a lot of things. And I think King of the Monsters continues in that vein where it's like, I'm just going to throw a lot of things at here. And I get it. Like, it's fun to watch the monsters punch each other. I get that that's fun, but uh, your whole movie is not that. Your whole movie is, if you're going to make, I mean, uh, King of the Monsters is like two hours and 11 minutes, I think. Yeah, that's it's too long. Way too long. If, if that's like what, half an hour at least. Exactly. So if you're going to, if, if you're, if your main driving thing is people want to see monsters punch each other, then just scale back on the, on the, on the humans, just scale it back. You know, no, no one would be mad at you. If King of the Monsters was like 95 minutes, no yeah. one would be mad at you. Well, and that's what – as I was watching it, I was like, it, it, wouldn't it be kind of more interesting to do a real-time Godzilla – and I haven't seen the old ones, but like a real-time Godzilla movie. Like focus on a couple of human characters in a city with Godzilla doing whatever he's doing and just follow it in real time or close to real time uh, instead of hopping back and forth because you lose so much of the pacing. The pacing was a big problem in this movie for me because the movie just kind of stopped cold in a number of places. And then there are spots where I'm like, is it over? Like, where do we go from here? And then the monsters come back and it's like, okay, I guess. Sure. Cool. Whatever. Yeah. It's, it wants to be like this globe hopping adventure, but there's no real adventure to it. And there's no real scale to it. Like, it is technically globe hopping, but it, until you just said that, I didn't realize the actual scale of, like, where it traverses on this journey. Yeah, no, it doesn't feel to... like, oh, what a different world our characters are now in. Because they're mostly on just, like, the, the, the airship. Yeah. It's not like, oh, now we're, in, now we're in China. Now we're in Mexico. Like, yeah, they go to those places. But do they feel all that different because your characters are mostly just in a ship? Yeah. So I'm very curious to see what Godzilla versus Kong is because it seems like – I don't know how you – that seems like a smaller scale from Godzilla King of the Monsters where you have Godzilla globe trotting and taking on three or four other monsters at the same time, whereas now it's just Godzilla and Kong? Yeah, I can't say. <laughs> <laughs> you, oh, so you know. Oh, I know, yeah. What a dick. What I'm, a, un, I'm under embargo. <laughs> just break it. It's fine. No one cares. No one cares. <laughs> no one's listening. Gonna, <laughs> Only seven people. No, are <laughs> I'm gonna. Well, I'm gonna do what all the cool podcasts do, which is drop some hot scoops. Hot and scoops. Hot scoops, and then it'll get picked up, and then people will be like, "I gotta listen to this podcast." Meanwhile, the studio is super pissed at me. <laughs> and then all the fans who check it out, they're like, "Man, these guys hate everything." 
They even hate Star Wars Revenge of the Sith. <laughs> I thought that was the good one. That was the good one. To be fair, I described it as office garbage, which is not as dirty as regular garbage. Just just the, the faintest praise you can damn a film with. <laughs> not the smelly garbage, just not regular garbage. Uh uh, I am. I do. I will say. I like the choice of directors of these movies. I like that it's not. Um, it's not an obvious choice. It's not uh, necessarily a safe choice, um, and it's not like Michael Bay or whatever. I like that they're giving shots to Gareth Edwards, Jordan Vogt Roberts, Michael Doherty, and now Adam Wingard, and they are all ostensibly genre filmmakers. Um, and with, in the case of Doherty and Wingard, they're horror directors. So I was expecting a little more horror in this. There was definitely not very much horror in this one. But uh, yeah, I, I I like these directors. At the same time, it feels like a system that has been very much put in play, where like you know. They have to listen to what the studio says. Well, also like that. Yeah. Like they basically are at this point where they, they're trying to play the game. So they're, they've, they've done an indie film that's found some success or like a smaller budget film that's found some success, but not enough to really give them the clout to push back against the studio. And that means that like, yeah, I think, you know, Adam Wingard does have some really great ideas. I don't think he's going to, I think he really has to negotiate with the studio about which of those ideas are going to get realized. Yeah. And, and, and given that, and given what we know about 2014's Godzilla, which, uh, Gareth Edwards had some pushback on with the studio. Um, and even Kong Skull Island, Jordan Rook Roberts has been candid about, um, pushing back on the studio on aspects of that film. I guess we shouldn't lay the entire blame on Michael Doherty's feet, even though his name is on the film as director. So. Yeah, I'm sure. Like again, I it's it it can be easy to go from directing an a, a a smaller budget film to a giant tentpole blockbuster, and like I you know I'm not going to be like I'll never see a Michael Doherty film again. Like you know I'm sure he'll be fine. Um, I just felt that King of the Monsters was it just didn't have the punch that I hoped that it would. I I think the choices that were made were not the strongest ones. Yeah, I guess the, the the worst thing I can say about it is that it's it's pretty largely forgettable, and I don't necessarily have any desire to revisit it. So yeah, exactly, didn't hate it. It's not you know incompetent. It's it's fine filmmaking, and there's some interesting performances in it. But um, it's it's unfortunately one of those summer blockbusters that you're like, oh yeah, that one's gonna fade pretty quickly. Yeah, exactly. Um. So I guess with that, now as, as as King of the Monsters fades into our memory, uh, <laughs> what what talk, talk to us about recently watched? What have you seen lately? Uh, so I finally caught up with the Game of Thrones documentary, uh, which I believe is called The Last Watch. Uh, it's a two-hour documentary. They aired a week after the series finale, uh, chronicling the making of the final season uh, from an actual like. Uh, documentary filmmaker. She was on set throughout the making of the final season, captured a lot of footage, uh, including the final table read. I didn't really necessarily know what to expect and what kind of access to expect from this documentary, and it's not what I was expecting it to be. Um, The protagonists, essentially, of this documentary are the craftspeople who made Game of Thrones possible and not Benioff and Weiss or the principal actors. Um, There are interviews and, and some really good footage of people like Amelia Clark and Kit Harrington, um, Benioff and Weiss do not 
uh, do any on-camera interviews in it or, or give any insight in the process or anything. But the main like uh, kind of people that you follow are – one of them is an extra named Andy Daly who uh, I think – no, maybe not as Andy Daly. Uh, I can't remember his name now and it's escaping me. But uh, seems like a super cool guy. Uh, he's He had been an extra on the show for uh, a few years and was just obsessed with the series and uh, just really like – throwing his whole heart into this he played a member of the night's watch uh or a member of uh i think it's the night's watch or like john snow's army something like that um and you just kind of like see him like in his costume fittings and then like um in the makeup and uh joking around with the other extras on set another one of the people they follow is uh this woman who's uh the co-head of the prosthetics department so putting on the makeup for all the white walkers and all the people for the Battle of Winterfell, and kind of seeing her uh, juggling this while also struggling with the fact that like her daughter is in school and she's missing like some big moments in her daughter's life because they're in Belfast, Ireland, which is where production of Game of Thrones was was stationed um, and set up. Uh, and you also follow Bernie Caulfield, who's the exec- one of the executive producers on the show, but she's really kind of the boots on the ground executive producer. So it's really interesting to see um, her kind of coordinate and and what she does on that front. Um, and they were really fascinating and, and at times heartwarming stories. The um, the extra guy gave his wrap jacket to Kit Harrington, and then on Kit Harrington's final day of filming, he shows up to set and he comes into contact with the extra, and he's wearing the shirt. Kit Harrington is wearing the jacket that he gave him, and you can see that it means so much to this guy who's just an extra on the show and like doesn't really know Kit Harrington that well, um, and is just so passionate about him. But like just to see that he chose to wear it uh or to wear it and you know it's it was like a crew jacket that the extras all had and everything and you know these are the guys who who aren't the stars of the show they don't do interviews they don't uh get lines in the show they rarely get uh close-ups but they've been with the series for a long time and it kind of means a lot to them so it's it's a really fascinating look at um what it takes to make a show or a movie like if you're actually interested in what is it actually like to make one of these things um it's very interesting on that uh from that perspective and from a like a day-to-day standpoint um from everything from like craft services and uh you know the the night shoots which seemed insane and how they built uh the Winterville set oh another one of the people they follow is the guy who is in charge of the fake snow and like he himself has a really interesting story so it's a nice reminder that like you know, Kit Harrington is famous, but the guy who's in charge of putting the fake snow down has lived a really interesting life and like also has a lot of interesting things to say. That being said, as someone who uh, relishes like audio commentaries and stuff, I was bummed that there was no insight into like, okay, what's the process of Benioff and Weiss for making this show? What is their day-to-day like? How do they break a season? How do they execute a season? What's the process for a director? Because it's it's shot in blocks, which means that – so David Nutter directed, uh, I think, four episodes of the final season, three episodes of the final season. He had to be around for the entirety of the shoot. It's not like they shoot in order. Uh, Amelia Clark's final scene that, they shot on the, that she shot on the series was a scene from the Battle of Winterfell episode. Um, so that's the kind of thing I wanted to see more of. I wanted to see, uh, you know, okay, what is it like for a director to go to Belfast for – 
nine months and you know shoot his his episodes and fits and starts and sharing episodes with other directors and, and cast members and stuff like that or even maybe some like more intimate interviews with people like amelia clark or kit harrington of like what's it like to be an actor um really the only stuff we get from that is the the table read for the final season which is at the beginning of the documentary which is really interesting to see but there's not a ton of uh footage from it so I would say it's definitely worth checking out and it's interesting. Uh, I was just left really wanting like a companion doc. Like I'm very glad that this documentary exists, especially as a testament to the people that worked so hard on this show that did not get the recognition or the money that the other people did. Um, but as a fan of these kinds of things, I was also uh, kind of disappointed not to have that insight. Cause I mean, it would, regardless of how you feel about how it ended, I think that it's it's one of the biggest TV shows in history, and it was run by these same two guys for the entire time, and they didn't have a giant writing staff. So, what was their process like? What did that look like? Um, you know how how did it change or evolve throughout the series? And you don't really get any of that. So that was kind of a bummer. Yeah, I get that you start to sort of make choices like what is like, and the, it'd be kind of neat if like there was a documentary series, like yeah, a seasons worth of documentary episodes about Game of Thrones. I'm sure people would happily tune in for that maybe not as much depending on <laughs> feelings for the final season but i think you're right there's a lot going on there um and it would have been nice to have something sort of like uh the the episode one documentary the phantom menace documentary where yeah. so where where benny often weiss says i think i may have gone <laughs> Well, I'm sure there's the question of access too. like maybe Benioff and Weiss because they don't appear on camera. They you only see them like fleetingly, but Mm -hmm. they never address the camera and they never like talk to the director of the documentary. So it may have been a thing of access where they were like, you know, we're not, uh, you know, I'm fine with you making this documentary, but we're not going to be involved. Like We're not talking or whatever. Yeah. What we're going to do are these behind the scenes things that after every every episode and they're going to reveal that we don't know our own story. Like we're like, <laughs> Danny forgot about the ships. And then there's yeah. literally footage of some of her being told about the ships. But whatever. <laughs> well, whatever, man, I'm going to that's going to be one of the highlights of 2019 is just <laughs> whining about Game just of Thrones. Runs for six weeks. Yeah, what a what a fun ride. <laughs> um, yeah. So for me, uh, my wife and I recently decided to rewatch Rebecca, which I hadn't watched since I was a, a freshman in college. Uh, but I, I have it on Criterion, and I just wanted to. I felt like giving it a, a rewatch because she's a fan of it, and I'm a fan of it. But I I want to revisit it. Uh, it was released in 1940, based on the Daphne du Maurier. Novel directed by Alfred Hitchcock. Um, the plot is that uh, this guy Max De Winter, played by Laurence Olivier, um, is distraught over the over the death of his wife Rebecca, and he falls for this sort of young, naive uh, ingenue uh, played by Joan Fontaine, and she becomes kind of smitten with him. And after sort of a whirlwind romance in Monte Carlo. Uh, he proposes to her and she agrees. So they go back to Mandalay, his home, this sort of grand castle. And she discovers no one is really over Rebecca. And she, <laughs> it's a ghost story where she is haunting the entire world. Um, and sort of the film is plot wise is kind of like unraveling the mystery of like, okay, who was Rebecca? What exactly happened to her? Why is everything so fucking strange? 
Um, I think it's a really fascinating film. I think it's a film that definitely is, is peak Hitchcock in terms of his thematic obsessions, in terms of uh, male power over female identity um, and trying to craft a woman to a certain design uh, as Max tries to do with uh, Fontaine's character who doesn't get a name. She is credited as Mrs. De Winter. Um, you saying my man Hitchcock has some uh, lady issues? I might be saying your man Hitchcock <laughs> might have some lady issues. You saying he's a bit of a pervert? I'm saying he might be a bit of a pervert, <laughs> a bit of a fucking weirdo. But Hitchcock's the, got some problems. The big question with Hitch, the big question with Hitchcock, and I'm sure if I had done the reading, I would know the answer. Does <laughs> Hitchcock know he's a pervert? That's my that's, and I think he does. I think he knows he's a fucking pervert, yeah. um, and he leans into it. I don't think he's. I don't think he's fucking oblivious to like. Oh, I keep returning to these kind of characters. But I, between Rear Window and Vertigo alone, I think it's like, oh yeah, he knows what he's doing. Yeah, he he gets it. He knows. <laughs> he's he knows he's a perv. He's being yeah. like, look at me, I'm a perv. Yeah, I have this weird thing about the need to control and contraft. You know, but I mean, honestly, if you're going to do a study into the male gaze, I mean, Hitchcock is your man. Yeah. Um, but I would say that. You know, Rebecca is like it's 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 such a fascinating film, and I mean, you can still sort of see, you know, its its influence. You know, as recently as a film like Gone Girl, where you know the sort of the idea of a certain woman has so much control, but it's in contrast to who she actually is and how people remember her. It's it's really fascinating, um, and I love. I think the film is is gorgeous to look at. Um, really rich and vibrant. Uh, with sort of uh, the gothicness of it. And my wife made a good observation is that Rebecca is kind of an inversion of Jane Eyre um, where, you know, instead of uh, the man, you know, hiding, you know, you know, he's a good guy, but he has a dark secret. Like it it, it has Jane Eyre tones to it, but um, you know, he is trying to hide this, um, you know, element to, to her. And it, it's really interesting how the sort of the films kind of mirror each other and not mirror. I mean, the stories, I mean, they were both books first. Um, yeah. but I think it's, it's a really strong film. I, I really enjoy it. Um, it's a lot to unpack with it, um, in terms of what it means and what it says about cinema. And I just, I, I strongly recommend it. I think it, it holds up beautifully. I'm very curious to see what Ben Wheatley is going to do with his remake. Um, yes. I think he has cast it very well. I think yeah. Army Hammer and Lily uh, James are very well suited to those roles. Uh, and I'm very excited to see what, what comes of it. Yeah. Same here. No, uh, I love Rebecca and Hitchcock is one of my favorite directors. Um, Acknowledging that he has some serious issues. Yeah, you can admire uh, Hitchcock's movie without being like, I think Hitchcock is also good as a good person. <laughs> yeah, no, I think that there were major, major he had major problems, um, both on and offset. Uh, but um, yeah, I, Rebecca is one of my favorites of his, and I think it's the only film of his to win Best Picture. Um, I think you might be right about that. I think it's the only one that actually won. Um, and it's very refined. Like it's, uh, I mean, not that other films of his aren't refined, but um, it's very kind of classical. Whereas, uh, kind of in the years following that, he would start to kind of play around with um, with form 
um, especially as it got to like Rope and uh, Strangers on a Train, and get a bit more kind of genre or or um, um, I don't know if pervy is the right word, but like scandalous, I guess. I mean, his stuff definitely. I think as time goes on, he, he sort of takes advantage of of the sort of the death of the production code, or yeah. you know, the slow death of the production code, and starts getting darker and more twisted with his movies. Yeah. Um, even though Rebecca is plenty dark and twisted, it's just in that way that a 1940s movie is. Yeah, right? in a very like classy way. Yeah, it's cla- very classy. It's, it's classy in how fucked up it is. <laughs> yes. Exactly. Uh, the performances are great, but yeah, the the cinematography is stunning in that movie. Yeah, it's really impressive. So yeah. uh, I would highly recommend if you, you know, get the Criterion Blu-ray, it, you, you will not be disappointed. Yeah, blind buy it. It's a really great, uh, great watch and rewatch. So, yeah. Okay. So if you want to keep up with this podcast, you should follow us on Twitter. Adam, where can we find you on Twitter? At Adam Chitwood. And you can find me at Matt Goldberg. Thanks for listening, everyone. We'll be back with you next week.